right, shall I start the show? Do, do we want to start with an icebreaker about me talking about the really awkward conversation I had? At it's the, your show. Do what you it, got to do. It's my show. I don't know about that. It's our show. I don't, I'm not sure that our friend Soren in Copenhagen needs to hear my weird coffee, coffee shop stories, but maybe you do. Soren, weird coffee shops yeah. over there in Copenhagen. Soren, do you have weird coffee shops in Copenhagen? Uh, yeah, we have lots of coffee shops. I bet. Way too many. Too many. Okay. But, yeah, that's a bit weird in itself, I think. It is, yeah. There's, there's a mass proliferation of weird coffee shops all around and the hipster world. One of the things I've actually talked talk with my friends about uh, recently is that um, I think people sit extremely closely in coffee shops in Copenhagen. So it's completely impossible to have a private conversations. And, I, and for that reason, I don't really like going to – I don't like drinking my coffee in the coffee, coffee shops because I feel like everyone li- is listening to – all conversation. Oh, there's just like they're like spies everywhere. They're trying to get in on the spicy communist theory you're talking with your buddies at the coffee shop. <laughs> exactly. They're trying. They're trying to steal your theses. <laughs> <laughs> this morning, I went to the coffee shop, and one of the many struggles I have as like a Gen Xer, uh, trailing into being a boomer as I get older and older, is um, all the proliferation not just of coffee shops but of different types of milks. So there's various times when I've gone into a place and said whole milk and they understood me as saying oat milk. So I went in and I ordered my coffee and I made sure that it was regular whole milk and got into this weird little conversation with the guy about uh, 2% versus whole milk. I don't know. And at the end of it, I think that he found me to be very awkward. So when he hands me his coffee, my coffee, he goes, uh, here you go. Now you can go live life. And I laughed and I was like, because it was a very weird thing to say. And I was like, well, that's my plan today. I'm going off to live life, even if it kills me. (laughs) He kind of looked at me funny and I just grabbed my coffee and walked out. And uh, that's how I started my day today. That's a good rejoinder to a pretty stupid comment. It is, right? Like I I wasn't crazy, right? No, that was good. As you told the exchange, you came out on top i think i came out on top of that i really defeated this this young man at the coffee shop who was simply trying to serve me a cold brew i showed his ass it's uh the early morning on a saturday here in brooklyn everybody except sean was partying last night yeah sean's a teetotaler he's a kratom totaler these days (laughs) i was resting man i'm back to work at the airport between work and uh commute i got about 12 hours out there i got like an hour and 45 minute commute every morning and afternoon so i was resting what about you soren how was your friday night um i can't remember right now had a boy uh, what did i do oh yeah <laughs> i i had a i had i i had two gin and tonics while watching uh, uh the new season of succession that sounds like a perfect friday night for me man. Are you're all caught up yeah i, I just started uh, watching the new season you think they're well, going to turn ATN around? Well, hold on a second. You didn't ask him whether he got to the huge twist in like episode oh, three. I, 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 I saw, uh, I think it was episode two and three yesterday. Oh, oh okay. okay. So, so you saw what happened. No, no spoilers. Yeah, no okay. spoilers, yeah. But you saw what happened to Logan Roy. So. Well, the disgusting brothers have taken over by episode six. <laughs> so look forward to that. <laughs> I, wa- I want to see the disgusting brothers in charge, honestly. They're like the, the one delight of that show I find every time is uh, Cousin Greg and Tom, the two of them. I think just- Greg's kind of <laughs> jumped the shark at this point. Yeah. He's, he's just like R2-D2 or something. It's just pure comic relief. It's kind of annoying. But I like everything else that's going on in the show. All right, we want to talk about uh, <laughs> uh, slight, slight segue here uh, into uh, Welcome to the Antifada. 
Uh, we have a very special guest today. Uh, we have Soren Mao, communist philosopher from Copenhagen, uh, gin and tonic drinker and succession enjoyer, and also author of uh, one of the best works of theory I've read in a long time, and I think Andy would agree, that is Mute Compulsion, a Marxist theory of the economic uh, power of capital out this year from Verso Books. Soren, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. We are super excited about this work. Uh, we've been excited since we saw your presentation at uh, Red May, I believe it was last year, and uh, super hyped for this. So for the um, to begin this episode here, um, let's begin where you begin, which is a tantalizing paragraph uh, by Karl Marx in volume one of Capital uh, that gives the title to your work, uh, Mu Compulsion. And this is um, the direct from Marx here. The mute compulsion of economic relations seals the domination of the capitalist over the worker. Extra economic immediate violence is, of course, used, but only in exceptional cases. In the ordinary run of things, the worker can be left to the, quote, natural laws of production, i.e. it is possible to rely on his dependence on capital, which springs from the conditions of production themselves and is guaranteed in perpetuity by them, unquote. So, Soren, how does this paragraph help to answer uh, the questions posed in the introduction to your book that in the midst of capitalist expansion and entrenchment amid crisis and, and unrest, how does capital maintain, uh, manage to sustain its grip on social life? How is it even possible that a social order so volatile and hostile to life can persist for centuries? Why hasn't capitalism collapsed yet? Well, um in a way, it's quite simple. Uh, the passage gives an answer to, or a part of the answer to that question in the sense that it says that capitalism hasn't collapsed yet because uh, the capitalist system um, includes mechanisms of power and domination that uh, secures it or tends to reproduce the capitalist economy. So the capitalist economy is, in a sense, a system of uh, domination, a system of mechanisms of power that um, that tends to reproduce uh, capitalism by means of abstract and impersonal forms of domination. Mm -hmm. um, but I should say that I, I, I think that this passage uh, uh, expresses the basic idea very well, and I like the expression mute compulsion, which I used as the title for the book, um, but but it's not a it's not a perfect passage. It doesn't really um, you know it only it only expresses some aspects of the idea that I try to uh, describe in my book. Um, and I think one of the main l limits of this passage is that it only uh, or at least mostly emphasizes uh, class dom class domination. So it, mm. so the, the the quote says that the mute compulsion of economic relations seals the domination of the capitalist over the worker. But as I uh, demonstrate in my book, Marx's analysis of capitalism also uh, tells us a lot about how capitalism reprodu is reproduced or reproduces itself by means of uh, power mechanisms that cannot be reduced to class domination, mm. but also uh, forces capitalists to act in a certain way. So, yeah. So, so one thing I thought of was, when I'm reading your book and trying to um, grapple with the concept of the mute compulsion, there's a way that Marxists, me included, tend to think or talk about materialism in a, 
in a way, sort of like how Freud talks about the id or bourgeois scientists talk about genetics, this like term that can, if used properly, can just explain everything, uh, every thought, action, desire, everything in the world can be explained materialistically to some extent, or like the uh, the potentials of one political thought or action can never really stray too too far beyond the the limits or the broader desires of their class positions, which is something that people sort of talk about when they have this discourse about the middle class uh, or the the PMC. Is that something like what you mean with mute compulsion? Like you can never get too far beyond your class position? Um, I, I, I'm not sure I understand what you mean. Do, do you mean if, if there's a danger that mute compulsion is, that is, it's a concept that can, that there's a danger to try to explain everything by means of that concept, or I think he's asking: um, Is mute compulsion, or that is to say, the economic power of capital, a way of explaining how uh, limitations upon our particular actions are based on our class position, or that there is like an override? Tell me if I'm wrong, Andy. But that, like, the abstract and impersonal domination of capital. Uh, makes all of us um, kind of overdetermined in our social actions. Is that right, Andy? Yeah, that's basically what I mean. So it's it is definitely a concept that tries to explain how our actions are limited by the by economic structures or relations of production, and how power uh, is exercised by or how capital exercises power by shaping um, the environment that we act in. Mm-hmm. Uh, does that make sense? Is that a, is that an answer to the question? So the, the environment that we act in has like certain like a architecture or like you can think of it as like a maybe a, like a labyrinth. Like there's we feel like we have choices, but there's only certain choices and we're sort of led in one direction. And the way that we're led in that direction is by the violence of the capitalist state or the, the market or just by um, the economic incentives or necessities of living. Yeah, price mechanisms, for example, that, you know, if, 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 if your rent goes up, then you have to work more. Or if you like, uh, if, if your price on medicine that you have to need to have uh, goes up, then you, you need to do something or move or like in, in that sense, the market uh, price movements are a part of the, a part of our environment that we're forced to respond with, with our actions, right. respond to. So like an interesting uh, discourse that's that pops up, you know, all the time here in Bushwick, I'm sure it pops up in uh, Copenhagen as well, is gentrification. And you get into this sort of cycle where people say people are moving here because they're gentrifiers and because they want to, like, colonize the neighborhood. But then the people who move here tend to say, like, well, I I have a job in New York and I can't afford to live anywhere else. So, yeah, I think maybe mute compulsion can kind of help explain choices like that in a in a non-moralistic way, right? Yes, exactly, yeah. And so it can hopefully help us understand that the problem is that gentrification is probably an inherent part of capitalist urbanization mm. driven by economic uh, dynamics of capitalist production and not by... So the problem is not people moving to neighborhoods, certain neighborhoods, but, but uh, the... The, the capitalist market and the capitalist relations of production that forces them to do that. Or if, if not forces them to do that, then at least make, makes it very uh, difficult not to do it. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to the questions again posed uh, uh, in, the, in the intro. So again, it's how does capital manage uh, to sustain its grip on social life? How is it possible for this order to maintain itself and why hasn't it collapsed? 
Um, a kind of meta question for you. Uh, why did you choose to delve into Marxology to answer these questions? Why did you feel like you had to go back into capital? Uh, why is it you think that Marx's mature theory uh, is useful for this? And then in a broader sense, in what way has bourgeois uh, social theory failed us in this regard. Oh, sorry, can you just quickly explain what Marxology is? Oh, Marxology is is something that we all do on this show, which is that you're trying to find the the genesis of modern social phenomena or political phenomena, and so you delve back, you you re-enter uh, Marxism. You go and you read Capital's Volume One through Three. You read the Grundrisse, trying to find from you know 160 year old theory the sort of basis for uh, social life today. Marxology is like a kind of minute reading of Marx's theory and the people that came after them in order to try to cull something important about today. It's like the uh, understanding of the way Marxist thought develops and changes through time, right? Yeah, and 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 Soren, you deal with this a lot when you talk about uh, the new Marx lecture, um, the kind of uh, resurgence of uh, Marxism in the 1960, people going back uh, and rereading Marx and Marx and kind of breaking from, uh, let's say, dogmatic conceptions of coming out of communist parties or Marxism, Leninism more broadly, or Maoism. Not Soren Maoism, of course, but Mao Zedong. <laughs> Yeah, uh, well, well, on a personal level, I think uh, doing Marxology is uh, a very enjoyable uh, thing to do. Uh, so, Me too. Uh, uh, I, I was constantly uh, there, there. Could have been so much more Marxology in in the book. I I, I really had to uh, limit myself. <laughs> I, I could easily have had done that a lot more, but um, but that's not a good reason, of course. Um, well, I think my answer would be that uh, I think Marxists writings contain the best resources for understanding the world we live in, or at least the economic system we live in, mm. understanding capitalism. Um, so, uh, and, 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 uh, and I hope that my book shows that it's useful to go back to Marx and read his writings in order to understand the world we live in today. And I think that in a certain sense, Marx's writings, uh, Marx's critique of political economy, his analysis of capitalism, is actually more relevant today than it, in it than it was when he wrote it, hmm. because the thing he writes about in the last 150 years, uh, the thing, the things that he writes about, or wrote about, um, have only become more dominant and more important and more so, more so generalized, really, right? Marx yes, is in exactly. in the mid 19th century. He's talking about this world spanning universal system, which is just really coming into like the beginning of its maturity. And now 150 years on, this is the world that we very much live in, all of us. Yeah, and it's actually an extremely unique thing in in the history of humanity that for the first time, we can say that in, I think in the last three decades or something like that, for the first time in human history, all of humanity live in one uh, economic system, Mm -hmm. one global economic system, and that's capitalism. So... um, so I think that Marx wrote about something that has only become more relevant uh, or more uh, dominant since his time. And, f- and for that, for that uh, reason, uh, his writings are more relevant today than they were when he wrote them. So I think Marx's writing con- writings contain a lot of brilliant ideas and concepts that can be used to understand capitalism. But at the same time, Marx uh, was working on an enormous research project that he didn't get anywhere near finishing. He didn't even get close to finishing it, and I, he probably couldn't have 
finished it uh, because it was too large a project for one person to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was al- he's also a thinker that developed throughout his writings in his entire life. Uh, and he constantly changed his views on a lot of different things. So, so that means that we have this enormous amount of texts texts that are extremely useful for contain they contain a lot of great ideas and concepts and analyses that we can use to understand capitalism today but uh it's nowhere near finished and 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 most of the manuscripts are not finished and extremely chaotic so i i i uh try to i think of marx's writings as a kind of reservoir of ideas and concept that we sh- we we can you know there's there's not a finished th- theory but there there are a lot of elements for a theory that we can use and, and develop further and combine with insights from other authors and thinkers and traditions. Um, so um, to answer your question about Marxology more specifically, mm-hmm. uh, if, if we by Marxology understand discussions about what did Marx mean about this and that and how, this, how did his thought develop, uh, I, I tried to limit that in the book because I, want, I wanted to write a book about capitalism and not about Marx, but sometimes I nevertheless, I found it necessary to go into discussions about Marx's thought and how, how it developed and in order to, uh, what's the word, excavate, uh, excavate. the ideas, excavate yeah. the ideas that I wanted to uh, excavate. So that's why I'm, I'm delving into Marxology at certain points in the book. Because you found something in this passage and through the course of Marx's work that uh, for various reasons, and we can talk about the reasons, uh, has been uh, relatively under-theorized, which is this conception not of, uh, of extra-economic domination, uh, things that we're all very familiar with, whether it was like the economic compulsion of feudalism, which was very much a personal affair, uh, a direct affair um, through violence, uh, or things like militarism, uh, but instead this constellation of forces that you talk about very eloquently in your book, uh, which is this more abstract economic power of capital. Um, Why do you think that that was under-theorized? Why do you think that um, more Leninist or Gramscian notions of how capital uh, sustains itself on a systematic and granular uh, level seem to be more important, let's say, in the 20th century than today? That's my question. Go ahead. (laughs) Yeah, so so I I think there are many different reasons for that, both historical reasons and political reasons and theoretical reasons. uh, I think uh, the first generations of Marxists, the classical Marxists in the late 19th century and early 20th century, tended to focus a lot on the, the role played by state violence in the reproduction of capitalism. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, uh, to a certain degree, a reflection of the historical circumstances they were in, the imperialist phase of capitalist of capitalism in or imperialist expansion in the late 19th century and early 20th century and wars, World War One, for example. Mm. I think there there were good reasons actually to um, to emphasize the centrality of state violence in the reproduction of capitalism at that point in history. Um, so, in in a sense, it 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 made sense to 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 focus on that as Lenin did, for example. But uh, there were also theoretical reasons, I think. Um, for example, the most of the classical Marxists in that er- era uh, had what 
I would call or what other people's people call um, a technicist understanding of what the economy is, mm. where the where the economy was understood in the classical ba base superstructure model as the, the the base was the economy and it consisted of consisted of uh, relations of production and productive forces and uh, relations of productions were ultimately a result of the development of productive forces which was understood as a kind of transhistorical force or a, a something like a, a like a natural tendency for the productive forces to develop mm -hmm. and i think that led to actually a kind of depoliticization if that's a word of um uh, of the economy uh, because ultimately the economic Uh, base was understood as an outcome of the development of the productive forces, which means that the economy wasn't really understood as a set of social relations and relations of domination. Instead, domination and power was something that happened in the superstructure, on mm. the, in the in the state, and uh, that tried to hold back the development of the productive forces that would ultimately destroy, uh, with necessity, destroy capitalism and and uh, create a new socialist uh, society. So that's that's theoretical reason for why um, the, the Marx his the things he wrote about mute compulsion and economic power was not really taken up and developed. Um, another another important thing also was the popularity of the idea that capitalism has had entered a monopoly stage mm -hmm. in the early 19th, uh, 20th century because that and that was i think that was almost universally universally accepted among marxists in the early 20th century that the and era that, of laissez-faire had passed and that the rules of reproduction have changed yeah marxist theory of value was considered to be obsolete because it depicted a the competitive capitalism of the 19th century right. um, and i think a lot of the important insights about the abstract and impersonal domination of capital uh, is found precisely in marxist theory of value which was uh, largely ignored at that time there's uh i think some profound uh political implications of this and political implications in your book that arise out of hopefully an overcoming of late 19th and um 20th century readings or understandings of, of how capital functions. I think the, the critique of the conception of monopoly capital and bringing uh, value back into the debate, value theory back in, is really important. And in this sense, you kind of branch off of, again, uh, what value form theory and new Marx uh, lecture, return to Marx of the 1960s and 70s, this kind of efflorescence of, of new conceptions uh, and new critiques. Um, and yet, Somebody like uh, Moisha Postone, who you reference a lot in this book, who also had uh, a conception of impersonal and abstract domination. Postone comes in for a fair amount of uh, criticism. Uh, how do you feel? What, what, what's your take on Postone and what he tried to do versus what he critiqued as, say, worldview Marxism or traditional Marxism? Well, first I should say that yeah, I do criticize Postone uh, in, in my book, and uh, but but it's important to note that his like, the, I, probably the most basic idea in his book uh, from 1993, I think, is that uh, capitalism is characterized by abstract domination, mm. something like that. And so it's, it's uh, and that's basically the same idea, basic idea in my book. So in that sense, I agree with him on the 
that fundamental idea. And then we have, uh, I, I have a different way of understanding what that means. And I think one of the, probably the most important difference between his conception of the abstract domination of capital and mine is that I think that class domination is an extremely important aspect of the power of capital. And it's a, it, and it's a necessary presupposition of the domination of everyone by value. And that's in contrast to Pustone, who argues that class domination is a derived or secondary and very form of um, domination. Mm. So, uh, and I think that uh, I, I, I really, I like his book a lot in many ways, but I think that it, sometimes I get the impression that it was motivated by an attempt to criticize what is sometimes called the really existing so really existing socialism yes uh, to basically it's, and and to try to uh, develop a conceptual framework that would allow him to show that uh, really existing socialism did not overcome the uh, uh, problems of the capitalist mode of production and I think that's a sympath- uh, sympathetic aim I just think that it's wrong to try to to try to have such a broad a notion of what capitalism is is that it could include what happened in the Soviet Union, for mm. example. So I, that's one of the problems with this analysis, I think. Well, I think for, for me, reading Pistone, uh, what was valuable in it, it was it was uh, sort of a very uh, mature example of like new left Marxism because I I feel like he was really trying to rescue through the radicalism of the new left as the social movements are sort of drifting towards liberalism or like away from like a revolutionary posture yeah, yeah um you also have to consider the the historical moment that he i mean when he published the book in the beginning oh, of the 90s yeah that's right. quite a historical defeat yeah and, and i mean it's, exactly. it's it's like very difficult to defend the new left now so like you, you better do it in the 90s if you're ever going to do it but i where i, I want to go with that question is what i think he's correct about and maybe drawing a comparison to your work is that um, compulsion exists in these systems that attempt to break with capitalism. Like it, you're certainly compelled to work or uh, live in certain ways in the Soviet Union or North Korea or, or Cuba or, or what have you. So it, is mute compulsion like a specifically capitalist problem or is it is like compulsion itself an issue? Or do you think in under real communism, would there be compulsion in general or would it be like the absence of that? Well, I think that I think it depends on... Uh how broad a notion of compulsion we want to use. I think ultimately what we want to replace the mute compulsion of capital with, if we can, I mean, we can even speak of replacing it. I mean, mm. first of all, it should be abolished, but insofar as it's that mute, insofar as mute compulsion is also a mechanism in capitalism that coordinates production, yeah. then we would have to replace it with something. And what would that something be? It would be decisions, like a, a, a democratic decision in, in our communist uh, political institution, however they uh, are going to look. But in a communist society, I, I think we would also, we would have to have some kind of um, way to make sure that the decisions we make uh, are actually uh, realized and that could uh, and probably will uh, involve forcing people to do certain things if they if they try to obstruct the democratic decision making process or something like that. But like what has to be overcome is a very um, historically determined 
way of form of social cohesion, which uh, appears yeah. as though it's invisible. I mean, it's yeah. it, it is something that we reproduce, and this is, of course, from your book, uh, something that we produce day in and day out. Uh, with you know, we all, we of course too uh, reproduce the class relation. Uh, we of course reproduce markets, um, and what what the overcoming of that would be would be. Um, the visibilization, which isn't really a word, or like the overcoming of um, of separation, uh, both in the material substrate and also in in everyday life uh, and politics, of this sort of uh, the muteness of that compulsion, right? The fact that that compulsion doesn't speak, that it acts upon us um, abstractly and in a way that none of us, and as you point out in your book, even yeah. the ruling class um, can truly overcome. Yeah, and in, in that sense, there would. I mean, the transition to from capitalism to a communist society would be the abolition of mute compulsion, and then we wouldn't have any kind of any anything that resembles that. Instead, we would have as much transparency as possible. Yeah, I wanna. I'm really excited to get into this because I was um, on vacation when I read this book uh, when when you first sent it to us. And I got really, really excited about uh, corporeal organization and the conception of tool organs um, in your book. I think it's one of it's an extremely profound way of grappling with this question of uh, what human nature is. Right. So this question, what is human nature, obviously goes all the way back to the ancients. It goes back to Rousseau. uh, And in the Marxist tradition, of course, it goes back recently to Althusser and to the Marxist humanists. it's all about understanding our social ontology, right? And what you present is um, basically an argument that human beings, by our very necessity, um, are social, since the way that individuals and collectively we reproduce ourselves is by using uh, tools which exist necessarily outside of ourselves um, within this um, network of social relations, right? So talk a little bit about uh, this conception of, quote, tool organs and how this relates to uh, the corporeal organization of human life and how that fits in in a larger sense to your book, Understanding uh, Abstract Domination. Sure. Um, well, the, the, the concept of corporeal organization is from the manuscripts known as the German ideology. Mm. And th- there's, a, there's a famous passage in those manuscripts where Marx writes that uh, humans are distinguished from other animals by means of religion or consciousness or reason or something like that. And then he says, they themselves begin to distinguish themselves from other animals the moment that they begin to produce. Mm. And this is a step that's uh, conditioned by the corporeal organization of human beings, something like that. So what he's saying is that this what specific thing about human beings is that they produce which means that we we not only we, we don't just immediately consume our surroundings, we transform our natural surroundings in order to consume them. Mm. Uh, have to build something to live in or make clothes to wear and, and, and uh, process uh, or uh, cook food in order to um, eat and so on. So that's that's one of the defining things about human beings that they produce and and that's not it's it's Marx doesn't claim that it's that only humans do that but he but but just that humans do it to a in a in a in another to a higher degree than other animals and in a more complex way but the thing is that he doesn't really specify in those manuscripts what he means by the corporeal organization and how that's so he basically just says that 
what's specific about human beings is that they produce, and that's a result of their corporeal organization. Mm. But then he doesn't really explain what that means. And I think that that idea can be combined with uh, an idea in his later writings from the 1860s, where he had read Darwin and was um, and and was uh, studying the history of technology, and he um, began to emphasize the importance of tool use. Mm in the human uh, metabolism with the rest of nature. And uh, and in those writings, in Capital and also in the 1861-63 manuscripts, Marx speaks about tools as organs. Mm. And I think that's more than, um, than just a metaphor. So it means that in a certain sense, it's uh, tools are a part of the human body and we can, we can uh, regard them as a part of the body that can be easily, more easily than other organs separated from the body, which allows for a much higher degree of and a much more complex division of labor mm-hmm. compared to other species. And and he, in, in Capital Marx, quotes, approvingly quotes uh, Benjamin Franklin's definition of human beings as, as a, the human being as a tool-making animal mm. and uh, and compares tools with the with lungs like as just as necessary as lungs and he also speaks of tools as a as a prolongation of the human body and so on and i think so we can summarize that by saying that instead of having organs and having a body that is functionally functionally related and adapted to a very specific uh, natural environment an ecological niche a human body the human corporeal organization is adapted to the to the use of tools or external organs that can be developed and changed and combined uh, which means that the human human being doesn't really fit in anywhere and and therefore fits in everywhere mm. and has no natural habitat and and, um, and this so evolution that's, that's the basis yeah. for the the idea that uh, as Kate Sober puts it and I rely a lot on her work in that section of the book that the human being is biologically underdetermined. Hmm. There's no natural way for the human species to organize its reproduction, that we are forced to establish a metabolism with the rest of nature because we are natural beings, and uh, but there is no necessary and uh, no natural way of doing that. So it's always up to us uh, as a species to find out how to organize that metabolism, which hmm. means that the, that the human being is a political creature already in the way the body is organized right that there's there's no uh, there's no natural form of society and i think that also undermines a lot of romantic uh criticisms of capitalism for example that it's capitalism doesn't contradict human nature and communism wouldn't be a realization of human nature because no form of no mode of production would could be that there, there are no such there, there is no such thing as a natural mode of production mm. There's only political struggles. And okay, so so that's and how is that related to the main theme of the book? Well, um, that I think that explains this this analysis of tool use and, and organs and corporeal organization explains how economic power is possible. Mm. Uh, so it, it explains why human beings can become so entangled in property relations, mm. because parts of our bodies uh, circulate in the social environment and can become monopolized by some members of the species and uh, so on. So, so it, 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 it kind of explains how it's possible for capital to uh, separate life from its conditions yes. and to place itself and to, to, to integrate itself into the metabolism with human metabolism with the rest of nature extremely profound uh there was uh there's a quote floating around i think it was uh bad uh sartre by way of badu um talking about how 
uh, if human beings remain in this social evolutionary um, cul-de-sac that they're in right now within capitalism where you have uh, these abstractions dominating life, where you have our life processes and our metabolism dominated by uh, by markets, uh, dominated by capital. You have this radical separation of what it is that uh, we create from our means to, to recreate ourselves, that if we are stuck in this and we don't move to the sort of conscious expression of human potentiality and, and human production that is communism, then human beings will remain uh, nothing more than ants, essentially. We will be going through the motions of our daily tasks, unable to rise to the potentials of consciousness, uh, universal consciousness, consciousness that would come from being able to decide truly, collectively, what it is that we're actually making. We would be ants in an ant farm, basically, which I think is very profound and I think is connected very much to the argument you're making. Yeah, that, that, I, I didn't know that uh, quote. Was it from Sartre? I believe it was from Sartre, yeah. So profound stuff. Andy, did you have a, did you want to um, throw a uh, question out? Well, I guess my questions were more about political takeaways from the book. Like uh, I mean, two things jumped out to me. So I'll, I'll start with you. You write in the end about like the purpose of theory and like you don't really draw like there's not like a what is to be done chapter in the book. And like, you know, not every book needs to have <laughs> something like that. But as, as much as I got out of the book, I, I found myself sort of lost at times. And one chapter that really jumped out to me was a chapter on competition there was this sense that since competition is like the what unifies the proletariat, you know, competition between workers to sell their labor power at the market, since that gives this sort of, you know, unifying relationship with capital, which itself is divided, there's a chance for unity through that competition, uh, which is contradictory, but I, I think I see what you mean. But the way that I experience that competition or the way I perceive it and you know, in, in my life and life of people around me is uh, there's a lot of backstabbing and divisions and resentment and distrust. I guess, uh, you know, trying to broaden that question out, like these various compulsions are what unite us. And like we can see the commonality there, but the way that they tend to play out and experience it is is through division. So I don't know if there's a solution to that in the book or if you're just sort of defining that problem. Um, well, I think that paradoxical thing about Competition is that it's a mechanism that, yeah, that of course separates the units that compete against each other, whether it's uh, workers who compete or uh, capitalist companies that compete against each other. But it also, the paradoxical thing is that it's also a, a mechanism that uh, unifies the capitalist class. Mm. And I think that's also one of the reasons why actually we can talk of, in, in, a, in a sense, uh, capitalist class domination is is a is class domination in a stronger sense than pre-capitalist class domination because the capitalist class is so much more unified in a sense because they're uh, competing against each other. Um, but I don't think so. So so what I'm what I'm saying what my claim my claim and my my argument in the book is that um, competition um, separates capitals capitalists. But it also unifies the capitalist class. But um, but w when workers compete, it doesn't unify the working class. It, hmm. it, it 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 contributes to the unification of capital. Um, so uh, so so I think I think that's also it's a point I think I also have from um, uh, Michael Lebovich. I think he writes somewhere that when. Uh, 
you know, when, when capitals compete, uh, they push in the direction of capital. And when workers compete, they also push in the direction of capital. Mm. So both, uh, uh, so all forms of competition strengthen, insofar as competition strengthens the power of capital, it's all, it's all form of competitions that do so, also competition among workers. And when what struggles against capitalism is about overcoming that competition and working against that competition. And I think that's that's something that, that's one of the things I learned from reading uh, Endnotes hmm. uh, and their analysis of the history of the workers' movement, that contrary to what Marx and Engels wrote about in the Communist Manifesto, for example, the unification of the working class is not, is not a semi-automatic outcome of capitalist development that it has to be it's a it's a political construction that ha that has has to be that has to be uh created in spite of the uh, pressure the separating pressures of competition well, do, do you think that, that like i guess is maybe a specific question but i think traditionally the idea of like how the working class unites in the face of the competition in the market is through, you know, unions or like unions. large yeah. syndical organizations that combine many sectors of the economy uh, with a singular goal of the class for itself. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think in reality, what we see is a workers movement that's like represents most of the fractures within the class in general. But yeah, I mean, this, these are the questions posed by EndNotes. And in the, the Jacobin review of your book by William Clare Roberts, he, he puts you in this camp with EndNotes, Andreas Malm, Michael Heinrich, um, and specifically sets you a part of Vivek Schibber. Uh, do you think that's like a fair place to, to put you? Yeah, I think I put myself in that camp because uh, I rely a lot on and I refer a lot to EndNotes and, and Andreas Malm and uh, Michael Heinrich. Um, so, so uh, yeah, and I, I also think that, well, as you said, I, I don't have a what to do section in the book. And I think that that's uh, appropriate for a, a, a book that um, tries to develop a very abstract theory of capitalism, because I think it's usually not a good idea to try to derive political strategy from um uh, theory at that level of abstraction. Mm. Um, so, um, but uh, if I think, insofar as there are political, strategical consequences to be drawn from my analysis, I think they would point in the direction of a lot of what the Endnotes Collective has have written, and uh, and that branch of what was once called communization theory. Interesting and talk, especially the yeah. idea, and I think especially the idea that which has also been, which is also a popular idea among Marxist feminists that uh, we uh, shouldn't imagine overcoming capitalism as a process where, where first we dismantle capitalism and then we build an alternative. That we overcoming capitalism requires us to immediately begin building alternative ways of reproducing ourselves. That that is what it what. Re Dismantling capitalism is about. I think Jasper Burns uh, put, puts it well in a. I think it was in his uh, piece in Endnotes Five, where he wrote something like, "One doesn't win the civil war to construct communism. One wins the civil war by constructing communism." Hmm. Something like that. So I think that kind of a communization uh, perspective could could be. I, I think that that could be one of the strategical political consequences of 
my analysis. But I'm, to be honest, I'm not really finished with uh, thinking about that, and I'm not completely sure about uh, how to draw strategical political perspective from such an abstract theory of the power of capital. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard, and that's why that's why I think it's interesting to like. Um, even if you don't have like specific answers to sort of separate these kind of milieus from the theory. And so like the difference between you and, and someone like Vivek Chibber, for example, uh, like would be there's like, like Chibber has got like a very clear vision of like what needs to happen, like a transition to social democracy and from there to socialism. Whereas like the, the end notes line is more like a, a journey into the unknown. Right. <laughs> And like Marx himself, like he didn't have these clear answers either. These are unfinished works that are the more you read it, the more frustrated you get. Yeah. And I th- actually, I think that we, we one of the things we really need today is a better idea and and much more discussion about how a communist mode of production could what that could mean and how that could look and what it would look like. And I and I'm and, and I also I think that that's why there are a lot of great thinkers working on that right now, such as uh, I'm looking very much forward to, for example, to the wor- uh, works uh, by um, books by forthcoming books by Cordelia Belton mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Aaron Benana. Uh, I think both of them are working on books about how communism could look. And I think we need more of that. At least uh, one of the things that your book does is present a negative portrait of what communism looks like. Uh, excavating uh, on this level of abstraction, as you say, um, an under-theorized aspect of capitalist production and reproduction uh, that we can, I think, all use in order to understand better the impediments uh, to what it is that that we need to be building. Um, Now, Andy and I have been fortunate to have read your wonderful book. Um, The people out there at home uh, should very much uh, be interested in picking it up. It's really, really good, folks. If you're interested in this stuff, it's going to be great for you. Where do you go uh, next with this? What is it um, within your research project that you've uncovered that you hope to take um, with you in the future as you continue your work? Uh, You've mentioned the political aspects of trying to unpack this stuff. What what else are you working on at this point? Well, actually, um, right now I'm working on a research project that tries to develop... uh, the ideas about um, corporeal organization. Oh, tools. great. In That's more, my shit. Actually, in a, I'm, right now I'm going in a more philosophical direction and to try to turn that into a, something like a Marxist uh, philosophical anthropology and, um, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a Marxist theory of the body. Mm. So I'm actually trying to, to, to develop that part of the book further. Um, but I'm also um, preparing and, and preparing to hopefully write something more about like a concrete idea about how a communist society could, what that could look like. I ho- I'm hoping to find the time to write something about that. Excellent. Um, I wrote an essay earlier, or I think it was last year in Danish uh, about it, and, and, and I really feel like I could, I, I, I think I could write much more than that about it. So I'm hoping to find the time to do that. Um, and I'm, and actually, the, I think my writing mute compulsion has also helped me to think about uh, communism in by 
I think it's it has made me think about how we could also how we could have mechanisms in a communist society that would try to like, ex- externalize instead of externalizing relations of dominations in our material and social surroundings, how could we think about externalizing communist social relations in our infrastructures and in in our economic relations? And and could we imagine a kind of uh, what what I've called in an essay, uh, communist resilience, like as as a communist version of what of or a communist use of the human capacity to externalize social relations in our surroundings. Could we imagine building mechan- economic mechanisms that could prevent counter-revolutionary forces to re-erect class society, for example? That's uh, something I really want to think more about. And we'll have you on another time, and we'll talk uh, further about these issues. Thanks again. Thank you. Yeah, I look forward to that.